Father, our prayer is a simple but really a profound prayer this morning. Would you work in our midst? By your Holy Spirit, will you illuminate our minds to comprehend the truth of your word? Illuminate our eyes to see it, our hearts to love it. And God, would you strengthen weak vessels such as us to live out the conviction of your word as you lead us today. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Since New Year's, uh, our New Year rather, brings the hope of New Year resolutions, and, and it brings the the hope of, of just new days. I, I googled the top 10 New Year's resolutions, and here's the most popular resolutions for the new year. You ready? In order, from number one through number 10. Number one, spend more time with family and friends. Number two, get fit. Number three, eat healthier. Number four, quit smoking. Number five, enjoy life more. De-stress. Number six, quit drinking. Number seven, get out of debt. Number eight, learn something new. Number nine, help others volunteer more. And number ten, get organized. Now, if, if you have maybe four of those on this list, raise your hand. We've got some honest people this morning. All right, that's good. Hey, you know, whenever I Googled the top ten, um, top ten reasons are are our New Year's resolutions, what also came up were the top ten New Year's resolutions that aren't kept each year. Listen to these in order. Number one, lose weight, get fit. (laughs) Number two, quit smoking. Number three, learn something new. We didn't do that either. Number four, eat healthier and diet. That only tails off about March if we're strong. Number five, get out of debt and save money. Number six, spend more time with family. Number seven, travel to new places. Number eight, be less stressed. Number nine, volunteer. And number ten, drink less. I guess the reason these consistently make the top ten is because they, they consistently fail to be accomplished year after year. Something about the way that we make these New Year resolutions and then halfway through the year, if we're really strong, uh, we kind of curtail, we we fall off the wagon, so to speak. This morning, I want to challenge you to think differently about New Year's resolutions. The hope of a new year offers the hope of new beginnings. We resolve to eat better. We resolve to exercise more. We resolve to take time to enjoy family and friends. We resolve to renounce self-destructive behavior and habits. And these are all good and they're all worthy things for us to resolve. But I want to challenge you to think with an eternal perspective this morning. Identify those things which matter most in life. What are the spiritual resolutions you need to make and by God's grace grow in spiritual discipline and dependence on God? I think this passage has the potential to change everything about how you look at your life, how you look at your job, how you look at your family, and the entire world around you. 
This morning, as we look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, I think what we see is we see a king worthy of worship. If you're following along this morning, you can use a chairback Bible. It's page 807 in the chairback Bible. Uh, or you can turn to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Follow along as I read. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came over Till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw with the child Mary, his mother, or they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This morning, I want us to see that we, like the Magi, should respond to King Jesus with exceeding joy and praise as we humbly surrender our lives to his rule. Verses 1 and 2 give us the setting and the occasion of the Magi's visit to the Messiah. First, we note the timing of the narrative. It's after the birth of Jesus in in Bethlehem of Judea. It's in the days of Herod the king. And we see that Mary and Joseph have settled their family in Bethlehem to raise Jesus. Wise men from the east have come to Jerusalem to worship the newborn king of the Jews. This account occurs months after, possibly even up to two years After Christ's birth, according to verse 16 in chapter 2. You know, secondly, though, we meet another guy in this story in verse 1 in the narrative. His name is Herod, Herod the Great. History calls him Herod the Great, but a more fitting title or name for this King Herod would have been Herod the Terrible. Josephus records that Herod ruled as king of Judea from 40 B.C. until he died in 4 B.C. And so Matthew begins painting a a literary contrast between the earthly king and the heavenly king. And really this contrast between Jesus and King Herod couldn't be more dramatic. Herod's a madman who orders the massacre of innocent children, verse 16. Jesus is the Messiah who will open his arms to children and lay down his life for the less than innocent of the world. 
Herod rules by force and aggression and cruelty. But Jesus will rule by love, compassion, and the cross of his own sufferings. Herod slaughters the last remnants of the dynasty that ruled before him. He put to death half of the Sanhedrin. He kills 300 court officers. He executes his wife, his mother-in-law, and three sons. As he lay dying, he arranges for the notable men of Jerusalem to be assembled and then killed as soon as his own death was announced so that people would not rejoice but would weep on the day of his death. He was a wicked man. In contrast to that, Jesus is painted throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew shows us that Jesus is the one who, when reviled, didn't revile in return. When he he suffered, he didn't threaten, but he bore our sins in his own body on the tree, as 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25 tells us. You see, in Herod, we have the picture of a king who's a wolf. But in Jesus, we have the picture of a king who's the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd king like David. The one who would finally and and perfectly, as verse 6b puts it, shepherd my people Israel. You see, Jesus is the king that the Magi have come to worship. And Herod is currently the king of the Jews before whom the Magi show up and begin questioning. And that leads us to the third group that we meet in this text, and it's the Magi. These magi were wise men, as our text indicates. Legend is added to the story of the magi, but Matthew doesn't give us their names. He doesn't provide us with the details of their occupation, their profession. The number that we sing about in We Three Kings is only assumed because of the three gifts. Some scholars think there might have been ten, even fifteen. But no one knows how many wise men showed up to worship the child Jesus, the king. Their kingship is ascribed to them through a later interpretation of Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3, which says, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The word for wise men is the word magi in the Greek New Testament. It's where we get our word magician from. But we shouldn't think of these wise men in the sense that we would think of Harry Houdini or or, or David Copperfield. It's like those who are described in the book of Daniel. They were most likely pagan astrologers who practiced a form of Zoroastrianism, an ancient religion that that practiced looking at the stars to foresee or to foretell, foretell the future. They would practice divination, they would interpret dreams, and then they would study the stars. These were men who came from the east. That's really all we know about them. They were noble men of great nations. Possibly they came from Arabia. Maybe they came from Persia or Babylon. But they came from the east, traveling west, following a star that God had put in the sky. Regardless, Matthew's focus isn't on their kingship. Matthew's focus is on Christ's kingship. And that These men, these nobles from the nations have come to worship the newborn king. So notice in verse 2 the question that the Magi come into Jerusalem asking. Where is the one who is born king of the Jews? This is the one we're looking for, for we've come to worship him. 
God guided the Magi supernaturally by a star. And when they arrived in Jerusalem to find this newborn king, they began asking around the city about where they can find him. And why wouldn't they? Jerusalem is the capital of the region. It's only about five or six miles north of Bethlehem, and it's the place of the palace of the king. So there's so much really going on in the background of this narrative when you kind of think about it and try to read and and understand the context. The second part of verse 2, it says, For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. This foreshadows Christ's kingship over all nations. He's not just the king of the Jews. He is the king of all nations. The wise men's statement demonstrates how the light of Christ shone even in the midst of the pagan, dark, Gentile land of the East. And as their question reverberated throughout the city of Jerusalem on that night, it conveyed the thoughts that they were approaching Jerusalem with. Surely they know where this king is. Surely they're worshiping this king who was born. But that wasn't the case. Perhaps the Magi were surprised when they arrived in Jerusalem only to find that no one knew of this newborn king. Their response to the king's arrival wasn't shared by the people of Jerusalem or by King Herod. And so in Matthew's narrative of the Magi's arrival, to worship, we see three different responses to the incarnation of this newborn king. And those are the responses I want to focus on this morning as we look at the rest of this text. The first response to the incarnation of the newborn king that we see is in verses 3 through 8. We see hostility toward Jesus. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, what did he hear? He heard this question that was reverberating throughout the city. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? He was troubled. And all Jerusalem was troubled with him. This word troubled, it, it, it means that he, he was terrified. He was in turmoil. Herod was threatened by the Magi's announcement of this baby born king. Knowing Herod's background immediately clues us in to why Herod was so troubled, why he was threatened. Verse 4, Herod inquires of the chief priests and the scribes at length. He assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. You know, what's interesting to me is that Herod deduced from the Magi's announcement, where is this king? who was born king of the Jews, he deduced that he was, they were speaking and asking about the Messiah. The Magi's annunciation of the newborn king, he makes the connection that this is the arrival or the perceived arrival of the Christ. And so the chief priest and the scribes tell him of the Old Testament prophecies from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. 
And then Ezekiel 34, 23, as it's recorded, these two kind of merge together by Matthew in verse 6. Ezekiel 34, 23 says, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Verse 7, we find Herod secretly summoning the wise men to ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. At first, this detail seems a little bit strange, but verse 16 clarifies Herod's motives. And it opens the possibility that Jesus could be up to the the age of two by this point. And so in verse 16 of chapter 2, if you will, kind of look across the page or flip the page and look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. He calls the scribes and the priests, chief priests in, and says, where is this prophecy supposed to happen? Where is he to be born? Well, it's in Bethlehem. Then he calls the, secretly calls the, uh, the wise men. When, when did you say you saw this star? And they tell him when they saw the star. And then he sends the wise men, verse 8, out to go and to search for this child, and then to bring word back to him so that he could worship the newborn king. But verse 12 tells us the wise men were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, so they went home by another way. You see, Herod's response of hostility toward this new baby born king is telling, isn't it? He was threatened by Jesus' arrival. Herod wouldn't entertain the possibility of someone usurping his authority or of someone uh, someone uh, exercising authority over him and ruling over him. And this is the same response, I think, for all who reject Jesus. People reject Jesus and respond with hostility because he poses a threat to their own kingdom. They don't want to bow their knee to his kingship. But I want you to know his kingship is different than any other earthly kingship we can imagine. His kingship is one of compassion and love, one of grace. He's the shepherd king. And as the chief shepherd, his rule is marked by protecting and caring for his sheep. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And Hebrews 13.20 says that the God of peace brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, that which we are going to celebrate in a few moments through the table when we come together to partake of the bread and the juice. You see, the light of Christ shined brightly through his incarnation. The king has come, but some refuse to see and some refuse to submit their lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Some reject Christ with hostility because he poses a threat to their own kingdom, to the way of self. I won't submit my life. I will do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. One of Rembrandt's great paintings 
a painting from 1635 entitled Belshazzar's Feast, depicts in the fifth chapter of Daniel, King Belshazzar of Babylon was throwing a grand feast. He was surrounded by his lords and ladies. And Daniel 5, 1 through 6, states in the midst of his drunkenness and idolatry, as he drinks wine from the temple vessels while he praises the gods of silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone, that suddenly fingers of a human hand appear. They begin writing on a plaster wall of the palace. Daniel 5, 24 through 28 deciphers the message. God's word to that king, Belshazzar, was basically this. Your kingdom is coming to an end. I want you to see Rembrandt's painting. In his painting, Rembrandt uses light to draw our focus to the script on the wall. It's the brightest point, as well as the face of the king as he turns toward the wall in absolute shock and fear. Belshazzar standing with his right hand on an overturned dinner plate and his left hand's in the air motioning as if to block the light. His head is tilted back slightly toward the table and his crown is slowly edging off his head. His kingdom's about to fall. You see, what happened to Belshazzar is now happening to King Herod. And hear me close, one day it will happen to you. Herod the Great, as he was called, loses his greatness. And Jesus, the King of Heaven, of whom Daniel and the prophets prophesied, has come manifesting his greatness. Challenge to us this morning is this, don't be like King Herod. Don't be like King Belshazzar. Refusing to see the light of God's revelation in Christ. Don't reject this shepherd king, Jesus the Messiah, for your own way. Bow your knee to him. Worship him today. Surrender your life to this king today. He's a loving, gracious king who has come for your salvation and purchased it with his own life, with his own blood. Scripture is clear. God's revelation has come through the light of His Word and through the light of Christ, His Son. There's a second response that we see in this text. And the second response is in verses 2 through 6. It's indifference toward Jesus. While we see the contrast of kings between Herod and Jesus, we also here see the contrast between Jew and Gentile. The Jewish chief priest, those religious leaders, they were to be the mediators of God to his people. And the scribes, the scribes were the ones who were teaching the law to God's people. They were teaching God's people how to live under the law and live in authority under God. And yet these are the ones that King Herod calls and asks about this prophecy. Yet when the Magi arrived in Jerusalem, no one was joyful at Messiah's coming. Instead, as verse 3 says, they too, like Herod, they were troubled. Perhaps for different reasons, but they were troubled that they weren't joyful. This should be a warning to us to seek who seek to know God's word, that we don't miss the point of God's word. It's ironic that the ones who know God's word so well as the chief priests and scribes, could miss the very one 
that his revelation and word was pointing to. Both the light of Scripture and the light of the star had shone forth to declare the arrival of God's Messiah, the humble shepherd king of God's people. The contrast here should really, I think, cause us to tremble. We see the eagerness of the Magi to worship Jesus despite their limited knowledge. And that's contrasted with the apathy of the Jewish leaders who had the scriptures to inform them of God's revelation. They knew the scripture. But they were unmoved. They were complacent in their religious practice. Church, let this be a warning to us. Are we like the religious leaders of the day? Knowing the scripture yet remaining unmoved and complacent in our religion? Christ the King has come. And even today... Today, we've gathered to worship the God of all creation. Christ, who came and died for our eternal salvation, commands more of us and from us than indifference and complacency. Worship isn't about entertainment, nor is it about our preferences. Worship is about God's people completely and utterly surrendering the whole of our lives to the work and following of Christ. When we live indifferent, complacent lives toward Christ, we're actively choosing hostility toward Christ. I say this because in our complacency, we're rejecting God's authority and we're seeking to live miserably under our own authority. How about this for a New Year's resolution? How about we purpose to die daily to self and live daily for Christ? What if we purpose to saturate our lives with Scripture? What if we purpose to lead our families in devotion and to to step up as spiritual leaders in our homes, dads? What if we purpose to memorize one verse of Scripture a week for the next year? What if we purpose to grow in discipleship? Or what if we purpose to go to bed early and to rise early for prayer and study of the Word? Or what if we purpose to share the gospel with someone, with anyone, on a weekly basis? What if you started a Bible study with coworkers or neighbors to lead them in studying God's Word? What if our New Year's resolution looked like seeking to live under God's authority in the greatest areas of sin that we struggle with? I submit to you that we would be a transformed people and all for the glory of God. Oh, God, do this work in our midst. Church, may God do this work in each of our lives that he would move us out of complacency and indifference toward Christ, our king. Well, there's a third response to Jesus's incarnation. And that third response is the worship of Jesus. We see this in verses 9 through 12, modeled by these noble men from Gentile nations. I love how Matthew paints this picture for us. We see the star leading the Magi by night. And it's as if the star of night led them to the sun, which gives light for the day. In verses 9 and 10, we read, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced 
exceedingly with great joy. Is this the way our worship can be characterized? Even as we've gathered this morning, even as we woke up and rolled out of bed, got in the car to come and meet together with God's people, is the joy of Christ in our lives? Are we struggling with sin so much that we, we've lost sight of what it means to have the joy of Christ? Are we walking in indifference and complacency? Or are we, are we walking with Christ with an exceeding joyfulness that surrounds our lives? Look at what they did in verse 11. When they got to the house, they went in, they found baby Jesus, or they found the child Jesus with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped. Now, these are nobles from far away nations. And they didn't find the newborn king in the palace in Jerusalem. Instead, they found him six miles south in a house in Bethlehem. And when they go into this place, all they can do is kneel down and worship. Exceeding joy came over them as they encountered the newborn king. And the nobles of nation bowed their knees as they worshipped the baby in a cradle. They knew exactly what they were doing. For God had led them by a miraculous light to see the greatest miracle of all, the light of salvation's dawning. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, the gift for royalty frankincense, a gift of divine worship used in the worship of gods as incense because their offering was a fragrant and pleasing aroma to God. And they bring myrrh, a burial spice, to a newborn baby, signifying that Christ would die for the sins of his people. But hear me out, the treasures that they carried were of no value in comparison with the treasure that they found. Jesus, as the, uh, just as the Bethlehem star faded with the night and gave way to the rising of the sun, the dark stain and reproach of sin would soon fade and give way to the rising of Christ from the grave. So when the Magi bowed in worship, they were worshiping the bright hope of humanity's redemption. You see, it's the same for us when our eyes are opened. To the supreme treasure of Christ, isn't it? The value of worldly goods pale in comparison to the riches of salvation in Christ Jesus. Their extravagant gifts fit only for a king offer us a glimpse of a picture of the extravagant worship due our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, Christ is the supreme treasure of life. He's worthy of living for. And He's worthy of dying for. He's worthy of your life. He's worthy of your plans. He's worthy of your hopes. He's worthy of your fortune. He's worthy of your praise. And just as God sent the Christ into the world, hear this church, now He sends the church into the world. As Matthew shows us, the nations are led to come and see the king and his arrival. But then at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, at his ascension, the church must now take Christ 
to the nations. This means whether you're leading co-workers to joyful worship of Christ or whether you're a student leading other students on your campus to joyfully worship Christ. God wants to use you to prompt the worship of others to him through the spread of his gospel. Church, this is our mission in the world. This is why we're seeking to minister to foster families in our community through a parents' night out. This is why we give food and clothing to those who need it through our food pantry and clothes closet ministry. This is why we gather in home groups around the city midweek to encourage one another, to break bread together into fellowship. This is why we seek to serve the poor with food and the gospel at St. Vincent de Paul. This is why we replanted Grace Mid-City and commissioned 60 members or 60 people from, from Crosspoint as a congregation to go and be part of that congregation. This is why we travel to Uganda and partner with churches and missionaries around the world. This is why we engage in ESL ministry. This is why we seek to be neighbors to the foreigners in our land. This is why we do it. It's for the spread of the gospel and to fulfill Christ's commission through the church. Christ calls us to worship him and to spread the gospel. And I want you to hear this. Our worship of Christ is directly related to our effectiveness in carrying out his commission. Because it's in the worship of Christ that we get a glimpse of the grand nature of his salvation. And our hearts are united together with God's people. The Magi brought this extravagant offering before the Lord. But even more so, they gave of themselves. They knelt down and surrendered to this king's rule. What is your offering to the Lord? Have you given yourself first? You see, our effectiveness isn't measured by how many people we gather here on Sunday morning. It's, it's, it's measured by what we're doing with the gifts and the resources that God has given us. And God desires to use us as a church in the midst of the city, in the midst of the nations, to proclaim His glory and to spread His fame and to worship Him completely, unhindered, in service to Him. So this morning, we, like the Magi, should respond to King Jesus with exceeding joy and praise as we humbly surrender our lives to his rule. Let me ask you, do you know this king today? Are you one that has exhibited hostility toward this coming king, this one who is king of all nations? Do you live for him and for his glory? Or is your life more Evident of complacency and apathy. Maybe this morning you need to consider the eternal significance of spiritual resolutions and your growth in Christ. Maybe there's some things that the Lord is challenging you in that you need to grow in and and gain discipleship in. Because in the face of eternity, the only things that will truly matter are the things that we've done for Christ and for His glory. So church, friend, this morning as you've gathered here to worship the Lord, 
What's your response to the incarnation of this great king, Jesus the Messiah? I'm going to pray. And you respond as the Lord leads you this morning. Maybe you want to kneel down on these steps as a sign of making a commitment to the Lord. Maybe you have questions about what it means to be removed from the place of hostility toward Jesus to the place of being able to worship Jesus freely. If that's you this morning, I'd love to talk to you about it. Explain what it means. Maybe for you, you need to confess your complacency or your apathy and ask God to light a fire in your spirit. Give you the joy of his salvation. You respond this morning as the Lord leads, and I'm going to pray. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the grace that you give us, that we can even come and gather to worship you and hear your word. And I pray, God, that you would take your word today and seal it in our hearts and minds. And Lord, I pray that you would use your word to prompt our own hearts to service for you and for your kingdom and to put into perspective what really matters in light of all eternity. So, God, would you work in us and through us and continue to refine us? And, God, would you break down any barriers of hostility toward you that are in this place this morning? For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.